0: How did a mountain in Mexico change the world economy? Find out today on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan, and on today's episode of the podcast, I'd like to talk to you about silver. When people talk about Columbus, Cortes, Pizarro, and the other explorers and conquistadors of the 15th and 16th centuries, there's a phrase that usually comes up, that they did their exploring, or their conquering, for God, glory, and gold. And while all three of these are in some part true, uh, that the European conquest of the Americas was done for motivations of missionization, social advancement, and wealth, the gold part of that equation is maybe a little misleading, because the most significant precious metal to come out of the new world was not gold, but rather silver. We begin our story in 1545, a little over 50 years after Columbus had arrived in the Caribbean, and almost a decade after Francisco Pizarro had led an expedition into Peru to conquer the Incan Empire. In that year, at the base of the mountain of Cerro Rico in the Andes range of what is today Bolivia, a new town was founded, Potosí. From its beginnings, Potosí was a mining operation, designed to exploit what would become the largest deposit of silver in the Spanish Americas. The load had supposedly been discovered by the Inca a century earlier, but they had left it untouched. By the end of the 16th century, at least half of all the silver mined in the entire world would come from the mountain at Potosí, where it was processed on site to remove impurities. The entire affair was largely conducted with indigenous not spanish labor much of which was not voluntary the spanish conquest of the americas was not the quick and rapid event that many people might imagine it to have been it was a long arduous and frequently bloody process owing to a combination of outright warfare and the spread of biological pathogens for which the populations of the americas had no natural immunity The population of the Americas was decimated, literally rendered to almost a tenth of what it had been before the conquest. While there was considerable immigration from Spain and other countries to the colonies, the amount of immigration was not nearly enough to keep up with the labor demands of Spanish industrial production, particularly for sugarcane and for mining. In many places, the Spanish crown permitted the local government to impose mandatory labor service on the conquered native population, who, while perhaps legally not slaves, were nevertheless compelled to work for their new colonial overlords. In the former Aztec Empire of Mexico, this labor service would take the form of the much hated and criticized encomienda system, where land was parceled out to men called encomenderos, who held the right to extract labor from the indigenous peoples living in the boundaries of their encomienda grant. This labor service took the form of a quota, which was levied on communities, rather than on individuals. The encomienda in system, which deserves its own episode, was subject to massive predation and abuses throughout the Spanish Americas, sparking such widespread protest that the government overhauled it in the 1540s, and replaced it with the Repartimiento system. However, the Repartimiento was a little better. It placed limits on the amount of obligatory labor service that a community had to perform, but it still allowed for the imposition of that labor service. In Spanish Peru, the labor obligations of the encomienda and repartimiento were built on the foundations of a similar obligation that had been put in place during the 15th century by the Incan Empire, the mita system. The mita had managed the labor of the Andean population using a highly organized tribute structure. And it was deployed for a variety of public works projects, such as the construction of bridges and roads. Following the Spanish conquest, the Mita system was modified for use by the Spanish under the larger Encomienda system, particularly in the mining at Potosí. According to the terms of the Spanish Mita system, every year over 13,000 men, one seventh of the entire native adult male population, from the 600-mile-long area between Potosí and the old Incan capital of Cusco, had to work in the Potosian mines and refineries. The Mitayos, as they were called, worked on a rotation of three one-week shifts, with about a third doing the actual mining, and the remaining two-thirds engaged in the process of refining. It's therefore not surprising that many native Peruvians fled or relocated to avoid the imposition of the Mitas labor service. By the end of the 17th century, Potosí had declined in the amount of its meta labor service because it relied increasingly on free laborers, workers who came to the mines to work of their own accord. Mexico also saw a decline in its imposed labor, especially in the silver mines of central Mexico, which yielded a higher quality silver ore, but in smaller quantities. The mining process itself was a grueling job, but it was the refining procedure which in some ways represented the more time-consuming labor. The standard technology of early 16th century metallurgy would generally involve smelting the metal at a high temperature to remove the impurities from the ore. However, in 1554, a new process, called the patio process, was developed in the silver mines of Spanish Mexico. The patio process relied on the use of a combination of mercury, salt water, and a copper sulfate substance called magistral to create an amalgamate of mercury-silver, which allowed for the precious metal to be recovered. Generally, for every 50 pounds of silver, about 100 pounds of mercury was required for the amalgamation, which meant that there was also a significant uptick in mercury mining in this period. At Potosí, once the metal had been recovered from amalgamation, it was either turned into bullion for transport or, beginning in 1572, was minted into coinage. Life in Potosí was not good for the indigenous American population, in part. This is because the Mita system took away vital labor from the farms surrounding Potosí uh, and the area in which the Mita system was imposed. Therefore, the native populations frequently had to rely on the Spanish for their basic goods. This caused them usually to go into debt, particularly for the workers at Potosí who relied on the Spanish to provide all of their food. The Spanish charged them a great deal of money, uh, money that was far more than they could ever earn working in the mines in Potosí. And so you frequently had generations of people who were trapped in an endless labor system. Again, technically not slavery, but still imposed labor service that led to generational debt. So what was the net effect of all of this silver coming out of the ground in Potosí in Mexico? Surely it must have made the Spanish crown fabulously wealthy. Well, it did to an extent. Uh, A couple of things to note here. The Spanish government did not directly control the silver mining operations in the New World. Rather, mining was overseen by private parties, and between 10 and 20% of the total haul was given to the crown in taxation. At Potosí, that number was at the 20% end of the scale. By contrast, the Spanish government maintained a direct monopoly on the mercury mining operations so vital to silver production. And certainly, the crown used its massive tax income for a number of projects, such as the construction of the El Escorial Palace outside of Madrid. But the monarchy spent a great deal of money overall on pursuits like war with the Dutch, which cost far more than it took in directly from the mines of the New World. Moreover, the influx of so much silver into the Spanish economy led to enormous amounts of inflation. Since silver's value was based on its rarity, to decrease its rarity by increasing mining production, was to decrease its market value. So severe was this inflation in relation to government spending that during the reign of King Philip II of Spain, the Spanish crown was forced to declare bankruptcy at least three times. Spain was not, however, the only country to feel the effect of this increased silver availability. Through the process of trade, the silver passed out of Spain and into the rest of Europe, eventually reaching the Ottoman and Safavid empires in the Middle East and the Mughal Empire of India, All of whom experienced economic inflation during the late 16th and early 17th centuries. There is some historical debate regarding the degree to which these inflations can be traced back to the flow of New World silver, and there are several other contributing factors which led to the inflation, uh, a phenomenon which is usually called the price revolution. But the influx of huge amounts of silver from the New World definitely contributed. The one non-European country which undoubtedly did feel the effect of Potosi was China. For centuries, the Chinese had imported their silver from Japan, but with the establishment of a Spanish outpost and clearinghouse at Manila in the Philippines, there opened up a new Pacific trade route for silver, and eventually over a hundred tons of silver was flowing every year into Chinese markets. In China, the silver was often exchanged in bullion form, rather than coinage, because the Chinese were experiencing increased levels of demand as a result of the Ming Dynasty's extensive tribute system. In the Chinese market, silver was twice as valuable as it was elsewhere. Moreover, silver was one of the few goods that Europeans possessed that the Chinese had any serious demand for. Most European manufacturers were simply not desirable products in the Chinese market. The opposite, however, was not true, and Chinese silks, porcelain, and even gold were in high demand in European markets. Yes, some silver was traded for gold in China, and then exported back to Europe. Some historians have estimated that as much as 30% of the silver that came out of the ground in Potosi and in Mexico found its way directly into the Chinese market, not Europe. Now you may be asking yourself, why is all of this important? Well, the extensive international trade of the 16th and 17th centuries indicates some new and significant changes in the global economy. While the trade networks of Asia, Europe, and Africa had all been linked since the ancient world, the 16th century represents a time of unprecedented activity between these zones. With the Portuguese discovery of the southern tip of Africa at the end of the 15th century, Europeans now had access to a much faster water route to Asian markets. Rather than having to rely on regional trade networks, Europeans were therefore able to bypass a number of merchant middlemen who had been necessary in previous centuries, and avoid the long and treacherous overland route and go directly to the source of those goods in Asia or Africa, returning to sell those goods in Europe at an enormous markup, until increased supply meant that prices dropped and those goods began to permeate down market. Increasingly, spices, for example, were not as costly as they had been in previous centuries and could be afforded by a wider range of social classes. With the permeation of silver, though, the opposite consequence occurred and the mines of Potosí and Mexico helped touch off a global inflation. But the fact that the entire planetary economy could be affected by this one line of trade indicates that, perhaps for the first time, there existed a truly global economy. Some historians have even argued that the silver trade is what created that economy, given its high supply in the Americas and its high demand in Asia. If the silver trade did help foster the first global economy, it was, however, and we must not forget this, a global economy which was based on resources acquired through forced labor and exploitation, on the subjugation of indigenous peoples and those enslaved in Africa and forced to work in the industry of Spanish America. Silver did flow through the world economy, it may have even given birth to that economy, but it was silver bought at a high price. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at HistoryFootnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.